potency of um, HIV therapy. So you may want to take a look at this. You can use this in our case-based discussion. Um, and I would like to, I think we have panelists as well, so we can have our panelists come up to the table as well. Steve, is Dr. Um, Dr. Jacobson, do you want to come back up? I'm sorry? There's not a corrections, but we can. Um, and then also just to remind you, for those of you who would like to pursue Hep C a little further, ISUSA is sponsoring a, a future of hepatitis C treatment uh, course here in South San Francisco on June 4th. Um, you can access the information on the website uh, and register on the website. It will be a more in-depth uh, discussion of some of the issues as well. So good. Thanks, everybody. We're in the home stretch. Hopefully, you can hear me. So these are going to be more cases, a little different, with some, some different points that we're going to be making. These are actual cases from the clinic. I'll present the first one, then Mike will present the second, and then I'll do the last case. I welcome my panel back. Is this not, not, not working? working. You've got to turn it a little bit towards you. Is that better? Yes? Use that other mic as well. Should I use this? Let me, is that better? Okay, great. So let me go ahead and get started. Uh, this is a case we're gonna be dealing with issues of toxicity. Uh, this is a 45-year-old gentleman. Can you hear me? I have to move over a little bit to see the screen because I'm short. A 45-year-old African-American woman who presents to your clinic having been diagnosed with HIV, severe thrush, and onychomycosis, stable on fluconazole, has multiple comorbid conditions, which have become an increasing problem in our practice with mild depression, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia on an ACE inhibitor, metformin, and atorvastatin. Uh, is hemoglobin surface antigen and hep C antibody negative, has mild transaminase elevation, a creatinine clearance of around 70 that's been stable, hemoglobin A1C of about 7.1% with three plus proteinuria, 78 T cells, an HIV RNA of 219,000, a wild type HIV genotype, and says that they're ready to start antiretrovirals if recommended. And again, no specific concerns regarding any particular adverse events, would prefer a simple regimen if that's possible. So again, let's come back to what would be your choice in this particular patient. With all the comorbid conditions listed again at the bottom of the slide, who comes in with a low T cell count and a high viral load. After midnight in Paris. Okay, well again, a nice distribution. So a third would go with a boosted PI, a third with the Favarins, and a third with Raltegravir. Any comments from the panel? I didn't specify the nucleosides here, uh, so we really will get to that later, but for the third drug option. And if the panel, if anyone on the panel would have used a boosted PI, which boosted PI would they use? Yeah. So, um, regarding 
So the, specifically lactic acidosis, a higher risk of lactic yeah. acidosis in people with renal disease. Yeah. I would say that you know the, we've heard already today that the history of depression sort of um, um, makes a Favarin's uh, non-acceptable um, choice, but that's not my experience. I've not, you know, if the depression's been mild and well-controlled, I've not shied away from the Favarin's. So um, I have used it successfully and monitored them and warned patients about it. Yeah, I, I agree, by the way. I, did, I don't think it's, I don't think having a history of depression makes you not and most patients who take a fibrin with history of depression do okay. Yeah. But every once in a while, you get one that doesn't. And uh, there is some data to suggest that having a history of depression predicts your, your increased likely to get it from a fibrin compared to people with no history of depression. So that's been a debated point quite a bit because people don't know whether those two things. But it looks like having a history of depression puts you at slightly increased risk. Having said that, if people do get depressed on a fibrin, you can usually treat them. So it's I, I usually get people better. And we've seen uh, somebody on the panel uh, worked with me once on a case where we saw raltegravir depression that we really didn't believe was raltegravir until it was basically shoved up our nose that it was raltegravir doing it. Um, so, so, I mean, it can happen with raltegravir. It even probably happens with PIs, although it's not as well described. So, uh, but, but it, is, it is an issue with uh, fibrins. So the questions I would have asked if you is, has she ever had a Favrins before? Has she ever had treatment before? No, treatment night. So she's totally treatment night. Yeah. The thing I'm most worried about is the three plus proteinuria, and I'm worried about HIVAN, and I want to get treatment started right away with something that's going to knock it down. I went for uh, raltegravir uh, mostly because I was thinking that she might get an antidepressant later, and drug drug interactions with the uh, ritonavir potentially. And the statins. And the statins. So by show of hands, because again, this patient also had chronic kidney disease, um, and this is a real patient. These are just the things we're dealing with in our clinic. If the patient didn't have significant kidney disease, how many people in the audience, almost none picked L-vitegravir cystat? How many would have gone with that as a preferred choice? So it wouldn't have if dramatic. If she had no proteinuria and, and her right. pregnancy. So no renal disease. It's a reasonable choice. A few, a few, okay. So she got started on Tenofovir FTC and efavirenz along with Bactrim, continued her other medications. At two months, her CD4s are up, her viral load is well on its way down, but the patient has increasing depression. She had been counseled about this as being a potential concern, so she brought it to our attention repeatedly. Um, neurologic symptoms that were thought to be associated with the efavirenz, I don't remember if it was vivid dreams or, or morning confusion. Uh, creatinine clearance is still above 50, but not by a lot. She's seeing a psychiatrist. She's been on antidepressants now for some months. So now, what would people do? No change for now. Sit tight, reassure her, follow her closely. Switch her to a regimen that includes the same nukes, either with rilpivirine, cobacistat, alvitegravir, a boosted protease inhibitor, or something else. Excellent. So I always say if there's a lot of disagreement, then it's a complicated problem. So about 20% almost said they wouldn't change anything. 
Uh, 20% said they would switch to rolpiparine. Uh, and then we have some people who would go to a PI, a third, and a third would do other. By show of hands of the others, how many of those would be to not use Tanafir FTC? So a lot. I started thinking about how I could incorporate that into this question and it just became a lot of answers. So a lot of them would be people moving away from <coughs> Tanafir FTC. Anybody want to cam con comment from the panel? Well, I noticed you didn't put Raltegravir as one of your choices, and I wondered why you didn't put that one in there. Probably an oversight. No, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I was going to, I would have asked the audience how many people were talking about Raltegravir versus how many people were talking about Bacavir. So, so how many of the, we can ask that question. How, how many people would have gone with Raltegravir had it been listed as their preferred alternative? Okay. She, Steve. She passed, she passed the Raltegravir test. Because what are you worried about? You're worried about resistance. And here's a patient with high viral load and low T cells, and now she's coming regularly, and she's taking her medications, and she's engaged in care, and she's seeking a psychiatrist, but she's having a, a side effect to her medication. So the first thing I would do is say, you know, you're doing great. You're coming. You're taking your meds, and you're having this uh, potential toxicity of the sestiva. So let's work on that. Let's look for another option for you. That is a really good drug, but you know uh, we know now that you're taking your drug, so you're doing your part. Let's make let's try this other option. Yeah, let me pick up on that. I think a lot of it depends on, and the reason why you have a lot of different answers is whether she's associating the bad feeling that she's had with the medicine. Because if she is, then the change you've got to change. Because to sit there and say no, 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 tough it out, that's just going to drive a barrier, and she'll walk away thinking you're not listening to her. Um, so I think it's not that big a deal to change, and maybe it might help. And she clearly does. Now, how much of that is because we had counseled her that these are potential problems? How much? But that's her belief, that these are caused by the You know, so many people did not believe efavirenz caused depression. There was such a fight over it. It just became overwhelmingly obvious that it causes depression. And I, I think that, you know, it's... it's you know, all the worries about placebo response, by the time you're seeing somebody and you're having trouble with them, it's, I mean, they have real depression. It's not a, it's not a nocebo. Sure. Can, can I get, yes, yeah, Steve? i just make a couple sort of observational comments. One is that although we're all aware of the data on twice daily raltigravir versus QD raltigravir, um, at least in my practice, I suspect that a certain number of my patients are taking two once a day, even though I've counseled them otherwise. So we should be alert to that and at least remind ourselves as we talk to them about and maybe remind them a second time or third time about that. And the other is that, you know, uh, we're all, again, we've talked already about the use of rapivirine in patients with uh, baseline viral loads greater than 100,000. This situation in which she's now down to 220, uh, I don't know that we have data on a switch um, when the baseline's high, but they've responded, and so we're sort of now in a in a different phase. Do we have? Yeah, so this is great because the next question I was going to ask for a volunteer, and you volunteered, was if anybody wanted to delve into some of the complexities about the rolpivirine choice. Because rolpivirine, in some ways, assuming you can get past the tenofovir issue and you're willing to push on for now, rolpivirine is another obvious potential option since it gives you the one pill once a day combination, just like she has with her current regimen, with a drug that seems to be much less likely to be associated with CNS toxicity. Um, but there are some issues, and one of them is the viral load issue, and 
the fact that the, the original data showed that people with viral loads are greater than 100,000 at higher virologic failure rates, does that apply in this situation? And from my perspective, I don't have any data on that. The only data set that I'm aware of is a switch study where they took people on a, a ropivirin, I'm sorry, on a, a lopinavir, ritonavir, or a PI-based regimen and switched to rilpivirine, and there was no difference based on the baseline viral load after they were already undetectable. And I think biologically this makes sense, that having a high viral load at baseline is irrelevant once you're suppressed, um, and that you can make the switch. So we don't have data with this particular switch, but based on other data sets in fully suppressed patients, which this patient isn't yet, it probably doesn't apply. The other issue with the rilpivirine is the drug-drug interactions issue. And um, I did want to raise that because it is one of the situations where we actually have switch data from uh, favarins to rilpivirine. We don't have it for the favarins to the quad, for example. And this was the study. It was a single arm study of patients who were virologically suppressed on an efavirenz containing regimen who got switched to rilpivirine. And essentially all of the patients, 49 of 49, remained virologically suppressed, at least after short-term follow-up. So this was reassuring, and the reason it was thought to be extremely important to do this study was because of the drug-drug interactions and because it seemed like this was a natural switch for people who were experiencing toxicity on efavirenz. So the thought was it would actually happen in clinical practice. And the concern is that efavirenz induces the metabolism of other drugs, including rilpivirine. And that effect on the liver can persist for weeks and if you give somebody a rilpivirine-containing regimen, would you be concerned that they wouldn't have sufficient rilpivirine levels to maintain suppression? So in addition to simply looking at sustained virologic suppression, they also did a very carefully performed PK study and demonstrated that the efavirenz levels decline over weeks and the rilpivirine levels usually get into what is considered a therapeutic range based on other studies within the first two weeks. So there is indeed a delay and getting rilpivirine levels up into a what is thought to be a therapeutic range. Um, but it didn't translate into a poor response rate. And I think there are a few potential explanations for it. Because at first glance, people looked at this data and said, OK, we're good to go. Patients suppressed on efavirenz can switch. I think there are some limitations. One of them is that while they only had to be suppressed for six months, the average patient was suppressed for, I think, a year and a half. So these people had durable virologic suppression, and some might argue may not have rebounded even in the first two weeks off all therapy. So there was plenty of cushion. The other possible explanation is that the high efavirenz levels for a prolonged period of time sort of covered this period of time waiting for rilpivirine to go up. So I think you can use this data. It's the only data that I'm aware of right now when considering such a switch. But it actually doesn't apply directly to the kinds of patients that I described, which I think is the more common scenario where you're thinking about switching for early toxicity. Usually, once somebody's been on therapy for a year and a half, they're probably doing okay or they would have switched already. So we have a little bit of data, but not great data. And it probably should still be a concern when thinking about these kinds of switches early on when the person hasn't already achieved full suppression. So this is what happened. The patient pushed on with Tenofer FTC with close observation, and they switched to a boosted PI and continued their other meds. After four months, the neurologic symptoms were clearly better or completely gone. The patient's depression was under control. 
There was no change in the antidepressants, just the antiretrovirals. CD4 was up, viral load was undetectable. The creatinine clearance had continued to just gradually decline. The Bactrim was stopped because of this and the elevated CD4s. Uh, and there were no change in any of the other labs. The UA, the UA did show glucosuria and proteinuria, but it actually has since the beginning, before they started therapy. So it's hard to know how much this can be attributed to diabetes versus a tenofovir effect on renal tubular disease. So what would you do now? So she's on tenofovir, FTC, and atazanavir, ritonavir. Everything is doing better except her creatinine now is dipped below 50. No change, dose reduce the tenofovir FTC. Switch to abacavir and dose adjusted 3TC. She is HLA-B5701 negative. Switch the atazanavir to an alternative third drug. Switch the, to a nuke sparing regimen or other. Go ahead and vote. Wow, a near consensus. Everybody said they would simply switch to a back of ear plus dose adjusted 3TC. Well, not everybody, but almost everybody. Anyone on the panel pick an other choice than this one? Everybody picked this one. So I guess the, the, tension, the tension here would be perhaps the concerns about a back of ear inpatient with multiple cardiovascular risk factors that we talked about before and the uncertainty about those observations because there's conflicting data. Yeah. Let, me, let me chime in there. Please. You presented it accurately and you show the DAD study and then what you just said that there's conflicting data. But in by my look of things, there's hardly any data that confirms the DAD data. In fact, everything points in the other direction. And, and the, probably the most powerful presentation was the one done by the FDA where they pooled all of the data uh, with the Bacavir use and found absolutely no signal for cardiovascular, increased cardiovascular events. And, and why I think that's important is that in the fine-tuning or assessment of the DAD study, the Bacavir effect on myocardial infarction or vascular disease was while the patient was on Bacavir. So that they switched off after six months, that effect was gone. So if you think about it in reverse then, the, the FDA has all the data on, on the initial therapy with Abacavir, the, the pivotal trials, where they're on the drug and they see no signal whatsoever. And these are randomized studies as opposed to a cohort-based study where there's other channeling biases and whatnot. So I don't think there's much of a signal there at all, actually. So I guess the counter-argument, and I'm, I'm not here to defend DAD, is that in the randomized control trials, one follow-up is relatively shorter and they, they often systematically exclude people who have significant cardiovascular the, the risk The latter factors. part is applicable, but the first part isn't because after you're off for six months, the long-term follow-up doesn't matter. In other words, the DAD study did not find a long-term effect. It was a short-term relative well, risk. Right. The events were related to current or recent use. That was the highest association. Right. But not necessarily current use for six months. It I could see. have been current use for six years. Yeah, that's true. We don't so, know. But, okay, but it's one study. Absolutely, yeah. it's one study. Well, so the, the other question you might ask is, there, there's always, this is always a good thing to ask, what else would you do? And there's, a, I mean, 73%, that's only three quarters of us, but 73% of, I bet you the other 25% had something else we would have done, 
And the question is, what else would you do? So, good question. Um, so one, one option would be to dose reduce not for FTC, but I think we would all be very concerned about that because this patient was already at high risk and looks like they're progressing. The other question is, are there other drugs the patient is on that might be contributing? I, just, I eliminated the Bactrim part because we'd already stopped that. So this is just what we talked about earlier with the DAD and makes the point that Mike was saying that this is the current or recent use with a very little effect for a cumulative exposure. Uh, and this is just one of several other large cohort studies, including the VA, which unlike the randomized control trials, there's no reason to believe this would have excluded people who had high risk for cardiovascular disease. In fact, I think many would argue a VA population is at VA, relatively yeah. high risk. So this may be a, a, even a stronger case than the FDA's case against it, certainly conflicting. So I think these would argue that we don't have the answer. And, but the other thing that's worth noting is that there may be other drugs that do contribute. And when push comes to shove, it's at least being, worth being aware of it. And while initially most of the focus on potential risks of renal disease associated with antiretrovirals is focused on tenofovir, there are now at least two large studies, and maybe a third, that suggest that adizanivir ritonavir may also be contributing. Uh, this was a one study from Eurocida that showed adizanivir ritonavir being associated with increased risk of renal disease, much like what was seen with tenofovir and indinavir. Many have suggested that perhaps these PIs have some similarities because they're relatively low protein bound, concentrate in the collecting system, and both have been associated with nephrolithiasis. And again, there are other studies that are supportive of it. There was one cohort study. This is a randomized control trial, this ACTG5202, which showed that when everybody started antiretrovirals, their renal function improved, regardless of whether it was adizanivir, ritonavir, or efavirenz, um, except the group that received tenofovir FTC and adizanivir, ritonavir. And there is some data that shows that one, boosted PIs may enhance the effect, the renal toxicity of tenofovir, and two, it may be that there's some synergy with adizanivir, ritonavir, and tenofovir both having an independent effect. And again, a recent, another cohort study. So if you were really pressed to try to push to use tenofovir, whether it's because you really believe the abacavir concern, or perhaps in a patient with hep B, where it's even harder to stop tenofovir FTC, perhaps thinking about at least another option. And in this particular case, switching off adizanivir, ritonavir could be one possibility. So this patient, we sort of did everything. We switched to abacavir 3TC and darunavir, ritonavir to get rid of both of the potentially nephrotoxic drug. They was tolerated well, viral suppression was maintained, creatinine clearance crept back up into the low 50s for what it's worth. At least it was stable, if not improving. So the last question is, what would you do now? Would you do what you'd probably like to do at the end of a long day in a long symposium, and that's just go to Disneyland? Maybe this will be more LA specific, or, or if I do this in Orlando. Light up a cigar, tell the patient you're a genius, meaning you are, not the patient, and all is good with the world, and switch them perhaps to fixed dose combination of Acavir 3TC, since their creatinine clearance is now greater than 50. Switch to Abacavir 3TC, to tenof, back to Tanofir FTC because you're still sweating about uh, the DAD study. And this should be one in two, Cigar and Disneyland, one in three, and probably could be one, two, and three, Cigar, Disneyland, and tell the patient you're a genius, or something else. Go ahead and vote.
This is really more of a personality test for the audience, I think. Yeah, I probably would have gone with one, two, and three. Great. I'm going to hand it over to Mike now for the next case. Yeah. I don't think they're going to let you smoke in Disneyland, though. While I'm doing that, just to remind everyone that um, since you got switched to a boosted protease inhibitor, to make sure that you looked at the atorvastatin dosing since she was on atorvastatin. Uh, in our system, um, we know this, but it doesn't come up as an error uh, to warn us in our computer. Um, and we certainly have people who are not as aware as you all are of the interaction. Um, and so you may need to think about, at least start back on the Torvastatin before you uh, escalate back up. Okay, so this is the last sort of in the home stretch here. So I want to make this a little different. Let's pretend like we're in sometime in the future, let's say a year to a year and a half from now, and that means that a number of drugs that aren't available to us now are suddenly available to us. So we have access to dolutegravir as full prescription. We're going to have access to something called TAF, which is, an, which is another prodrug of tenofovir that you'll either know about or you'll learn about in this section. And that cobacistat as a ritonavir-like booster separate from elvitegravir, just plain old cobacistat, is available to you to m match up with atazanavir or darunavir, and it might even be coming out as a, as a fixed-dose combination. So instead of having to prescribe ritonavir-darunavir, you just prescribe cobacistat-darunavir in one pill, or cobacistat-atazanavir. Okay? So those are all available to you, not free of charge, but they're available to you. So they're all there. Okay, but let's assume that that's not at play. Steve O'Brien is going to comment. All right, so a 34-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV four weeks ago, CD4 counts a little low, uh, 82, viral load 76,000, genotype is wild type. And uh, which of these NRTIs might you use? She's HLA-B5701 negative, so is that opening 3TC, tenofovir FTC, uh, abacavir 3TC, uh, FTC in this new tenofovir-like drug, TAF, or another choice. Go ahead and vote. Ah, very early adopters in the audience yeah. going yeah. for number fives. And that implies two things. One, that you know what that drug is and you've heard about it, I hope, uh, if you voted that way. Um, and you're adopting it. So, Chip, what, do, what would you vote here? Yeah, I think the data on this, on the new tenofovir uh, uh, drug looks pretty good. Uh, it hit its uh, targets in the query presentation. Um, a lot of it's going to depend on how the uh, pricing works out. Right. And, uh, so you want to take us through this? It's um, I mean, No, actually, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm serious. All right, so, so there are, what, what Chip's referring to, this is also supposed to be a bit of a Croy update. Um, and uh, <laughs> take it. Um, so what you're looking at here are uh, tenofovir levels in the bloodstream. And you can see in the, in the blue, I'll try to use my pointer here, uh, here's tenofovir, this, this line here is regular old tenofovir 300 milligrams. And then these are different doses, 40, 25, and 8 of the tenofovir prodrug called TAF, okay? 
So obviously the plasma levels are a lot less because you're given a lot less drug, but the intracellular levels, uh, if you look at them inside of the cell, um, are much higher than they are even when the plasma levels are low. So in other words, um, the, the, the take-home point, this I'm sorry, going the other direction now, 8, 25, and 40, you can see that the intracellular levels here, um, even with 300 milligrams in plasma, is lower even than the 8 milligrams uh, in, in, uh, given the intracellular levels are higher. So that's what you're really trying to achieve with this drug. So with a lower dose of this drug that is not, does not get high plasma levels, you get high intracellular levels, ultimately triphosphorylated, where it's active. And the take-home point of that is that it's believed, and some evidence is now supporting this, that it's the high plasma levels that lead to the bone and the kidney toxicity associated with tenofovir. So it, it potentially is just as effective at a lower dose, and perhaps data will follow safer. Yeah. So you, and can see, you can see now why a pointer was important to go through, right? <laughs> right. Okay. okay. And this is another way of looking at the same thing. Here is the intracellular concentrations, uh, 40 milligrams, 25 milligrams, 8 milligrams, that is even a little bit about the same as the 300 milligrams of tenofovir. So, Mike, so what was presented at CROI this year was their phase 2B study. And in addition to good virologic suppression compared to standard TDF, it was the preliminary data on bone. And it was really the smallest decline in bone mineral density in 24 weeks I think I've seen in any BMD study right. associated with the initiation of antiretroviral therapy and, and significantly less than what was seen with TDF. Yeah, I heard some jokes in the hallway that uh, Gilead has done a better job of dissing tenofovir than uh, Vive has ever done. Uh, so it's really kind of interesting now that they have an alternative uh, drug to put up against it. Okay, so. Uh, before you, can, can I just ask one question? Yeah. I'm curious to know what your response is, because we participated in the phase two and the phase three studies. And we have to remember that the, the background of TAF is, is FTC and boosted darunavir. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to a comment that Julio made kind of briefly, that in Europe he's seen a lot of of interest in sort of two drug regimens, and it's sort of come up. It's a very, you know, boosted darunavir and FTC are actually very powerful. Yeah. So although I, I don't argue at all with the bone density and renal function changes, I'm just wondering in terms of the virologic potency, if we are as convinced uh, I think those will be, be from these phase two studies? Yeah, I think that'll come along. And uh, I think the, the highest likelihood of where we're going to see the drug first, TAF, is in uh, acobacistat, elvitegravir, you know, new kind of quad, if you will, that may have less renal uh, trouble. I and think that's, that's at least their phase three program right yes. now is quad versus quad, basically. Quad versus quad. Yeah. Quad two. Yeah. 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 OK. Um, so let's go ahead and, and vote on this again. Now that you've heard a little bit more, uh, let's have the same question. Let's go ahead and vote. The music has gotten more subdued in the afternoon. Look at that. So, <laughs> so okay. I mean, we're making a lot of assumptions, aren't we, that the, that the safety really is there. But th the purpose of this talk is just to, to sort of plant the seed that new things are coming, and it's kind of interesting. Can I just, yeah, please, are, Steve. New things are cool, but, you know, the scrapyard of antiretrovirals is, is, is pretty teeming with things that used to be the darling. They came down, and we were very excited about it. When we have kind of gold standard drugs, things that have 
had a good long track record and a good long safety record. You know, I, I realize we're, it's good to talk about the new stuff, but you know, I hope nobody's too anxious to switch off unless you've got a good reason to switch. No, I think that's right. And um, uh, we're, we're all going to be making judgments as these things come along, and uh, the data will more drive us, but not only will the data drive us, as it was referred to earlier, and as you said in your talk, it may be that we just can't find payers who are going to go for that right away. However, in the last case, this could be a really good option, because uh, if, if the renal toxicity is not shown to be the same uh, as regular tenofovir, then it becomes maybe more a bacavir equivalent. That's a guess. We don't have the data yet, but that's where you might get a prior authorization or something that would allow you to use it. Okay, let's, same lady, viral load, 76,000, CD4 count of 86. Uh, what would you use if you're going to use a PI with this? Go ahead and vote. If you're going to use a PI. I'm, I'm guessing the Irish pub is open. I'm not sure. Okay, so 12% would not. And then it's kind of an even split between Darunavir and Ad, and. Uh, at a Xanavir. Uh, Donna, do you have a particular preference for PI or not in this setting? In, in the correction setting, you wouldn't want to start with a triplet just because you want to make sure they're going to be compliant okay. with medication. So, so, and if they're going to be leaving custody or something like that. So right. you would maybe go with a once a day, uh, either or. You know? Okay, so you've got several options there. Several, that you could. Yeah. You now, know, typically at a There was a subtlety in this, in this question I should have pointed out, and I apologize. Um, I missed my own opportunity. But if you look carefully, this is atazanavir, ritonavir, ritonavir. This is atazanavir, cobacistat. This is darunavir, cobacistat. Did y'all pick up on that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. You were reading and I'm not, so that's, that's helpful. Um, uh, comments, uh, any further comments about this? Uh, any preferences for cobacistat over ritonavir here? So. Because I wanted to say that that drug is coming, and and there's two there's a potential advantage that both of these drugs may be co-formulated with cobacistat, whereas now darunavir and ritonavir or atazanavir and ritonavir are two separate pills, so you have reduced pill burden, and it wouldn't be terribly surprising if you have a single pill once a day with tenofovir, uh, the TAF new formulation, cobacistat, darunavir, and FTC, for example. That could happen. So, Mike, just to, I mean, to, just to point out that, um, you know, again, we still will worry about renal function. Um, so, cobicistat still, you know, will mm -hmm. per perturbate that. Um, and again, you know, getting, t trying to tie in some of the discussions, you know, some of the drug development I think may be tied to predicted um, availability of generics. Yes. Um, and and I don't know what the time course is for ritonavir. Um, but yes, there is a formulation right. issue, but also you know, there may be a cost issue. Um, That's right. Uh, and I, I, certainly, Tonavir, we're expecting 2017. I don't know, don't quote me, but I, I think Ritonavir itself goes off patent in the next year or two. The patent fight is going to be over yeah. Ritonavir as a booster. Yeah. And Abbott's going to order, or AbbVie, whoever they are now, uh, are going to argue that that use was uh, made by them, and other people are going to say, not nah, so fast, my friend, that this was actually the community coming to you and saying, don't use the 400 or 600, use the 100, and they sort of reluctantly agreed by 1999. That was a long story. Um, 
this is what we were talking about earlier. These are the proximal tubules. And what, what I think we're all learning, we're kind of relearning medical school stuff as we're in practice. I, I didn't remember or didn't know about any of this, at least when I went through. But the notion, when I thought of creatinine clearance, I always thought about it was glomerular filtration. And that is certainly true. But what I didn't know until I started hearing about all this was that creatinine itself is actively transported from the bloodstream through the proximal tubule into the urine to a small degree, but a significant degree. And certain drugs block that. Cobacistat is one. There is no um, adverse consequence of this as far as anybody can say, except the creatinine, as you saw earlier from Eric's presentation, goes up about 0.1 milligrams per, cent per deciliter, or maybe 0.15. And when you plug that into an estimated creatinine clearance, you get a relative decrease, although it's not related to GFR. And these, I'll show you some data. So this is the cobacistat atazanavir with FTC tenofovir versus atazanavir, ritonavir, uh, and again, placebo versus ritonavir in essence. And the bottom line is there doesn't seem to be any difference. Um, and there's a little bit of favoring, but not statistically different uh, for the ritonavir here. Uh, the AEs were not also terribly different. A few more bilirubins, but uh, you know this is pretty pretty standard stuff. Um, as far as AEs overall, no difference. But the big difference, as we've already talked about, is here you see in green the uh, ritonavir, and it goes up a little bit, but in blue you can see up over about a 0.1 milligram percent, the cobacistat happens. And I think, notice that this happens in the first two weeks. This is an immediate effect. And so what I would also focus on is that as you, if you draw a line here, there's not much difference at all once you get past that first two weeks. So the effect is immediate, stay on it, no difference. And here's the estimated creatinine clearance going down by 15 milliliters per minute estimated. So that's that's a big deal for someone with a lower, uh, some CKD at baseline. Uh, as far, one of the things that you might expect, triglycerides were a little bit better with cobacistat than ritonavir. And part of the reason for this, even though they both block CYP3A4, ritonavir has additional, um, more widespread um, effects on other enzyme systems. It's probably responsible for that. Um, and cholesterol changes were, uh, a little bit different, but not terribly different. So, should we be talking about a different way of measuring? Renal go to the microphone. Yeah. Sorry, should we be talking about a different way of assessing renal function than creatinine for our patients on cobacistat? I don't know of anything other than doing an iohexol clearance, which is a pain. Um, so I think we just have to anticipate, and it's going to be true for another drug we're going to talk about right now. So if you weren't, again, the same woman. Um, you now have the option to use other things, which includes efavirenz. CD4 count was 76, viral load was 80, did I get it wrong? 86,000, 76,000, less than 100,000. And here are your choices. Go ahead. And dalutegravir is on the market now. Elvitegravir is out, raltegravir is out, PIs, et cetera. Go ahead and vote. All right, so a lot of early adoption again. 
of the new regimen, the new drug. Um, panel, what were you all thinking? Steve, you have an opinion about I this? I because I, you know, um, I don't see a superiority at this point in any of these drugs. All, most of the studies are non-inferior studies, and so I can't. Okay. Although, I mean, this is actually the first head-to-head -head comparison that did show superiority yeah. over Dalyutegra fabrins. Dalyutegra did, did a little better than a fabrin. But it was all show driven, those data driven by toxicity, yeah, not efficacy. It wasn't designed that way, but it, it ultimately yeah. showed it when you do that thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I come at this from a place where we have a million antidepressants, and they all get exactly the same efficacy. Every antidepressant gives you two-thirds, and they're all identical. So, the, so that what's different about antidepressants is the side effects of those drugs. Yeah. And what makes a patient stay on your medicine, all the patients stop their medicine eventually, but what makes a patient stay on an antidepressant drug is that it's well tolerated. Yeah, that's and true. So when I'm thinking about the medicine, the first thing I'm thinking about and the second thing I'm thinking about is, is this, how's the, what side effects is this person going to put up with from this drug and are, is it the best scenario? And so right. I said Viltegravir just is an issue of toxicity and what I know to give patients relatively less trouble. Chip? I think that's very, I think what Steve has said is reasonable. It's, uh, it's hard to uh, argue um, really uh, cogently about these against each other. You could say that dolutegravir is a D drug, and we don't use D drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well stated. Um, one thing, think about, one way to think about dolutegravir is it's, its profile is very similar to raltegravir in terms of drug drug interactions because. They're both glucuronidated. They do not involve the CYP enzyme systems. So less potential for drug-drug interactions, although surprises always happen. But dolutegravir's PK allows it to be given once a day. And, um, but there are some warts with it. But let's go through a couple of slides of data. This is comparing dolutegravir with either abacavir, 3TC, or tenofovir, FTC. You can see where they're trying to go with this. Sorry, this is a this is a fixed dose combination. Sorry, this is a full out study of, of their attempt to compete against the quad. One pill once a day, dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, versus in essence a triplo. And this study actually showed when you got way out here, there's 81% versus 88, and this difference was 7.4, but it did not cross zero, so it was statistically superior. By, was it designed as a um, non-inferiority, but showed an indication that it may be superior um, to, uh, to the uh, Favrins and the snapshot analysis, et cetera. Um, if you look at uh, CD4 count increase, it was higher like most of the, uh, in fact, all of the integrase inhibitors. As far as um, genetic changes, if you had resistance, uh, there didn't seem to be an emergence of resistance, so at least in the short term. And this is different than, say, raltegravir, where you start even on early failures, you might start seeing the 148-155 complex emerging. So far, this appears to be um, not as much of an issue. And the second thing about dolutegravir, just a book note, uh, bookmark, is that if you have a raltegravir or alvategravir failure with the 148 mutation uh, or 155, you can get activity with dolutegravir if it's given 50 twice a day. That's the Viking study. Uh, it's not great activity. It's not full activity. 
but it is activity, so you can potentially rescue, and that's where it would go. But notice how this showed some other mutations, uh, the K65R, obviously K103N, but there were, in the nine failures here, there were no evidence of even um, abacavir mutations or 3TC mutations. Um, as far as tolerability for Glenn, this looks like it was a little bit better tolerated across the board in terms of events leading to withdrawal. But surprise, really surprise, for no reason that I can explain to you, it also, independent of cobocystat, has that same effect on proximal tubular excretion or secretion of creatinine. That's just weird. Because, you know, raltegravir doesn't seem to do that. Um, I don't think, I don't know about elvitegravir by itself, but there it is. It almost ex looks exactly like cobocystat, but there's no cobocystat anywhere to be found. And this drug has nothing to do with cobocystat, except the cobocystat is matched up with another strand transfer integrase inhibitor. I, I can't figure that out. But we know that there are a variety of drugs that block these pumps, um, cimetidine, trimethoprim, right. ritonavir so, a little bit. So, so we so, learn about this, yeah. you know, after you discover something new and you start following. So like QTC prolongation, right. it's kind of everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm wrapping up here. So now that you have heard all this, let's go ahead and re-vote on this question. Uh, vote now for Okay, so a little bit fewer for a Favarin's, uh, still some uh, look at here. So again, we have to wait for the full data sets to come out. We're jumping the gun, obviously, by design. That's how I set this up. A lot of things, as Steve O'Brien said, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of surprises that can hit us, and number of drugs have gone to the waste bin that look really, really good. I will say one other thing that's, that's to keep your eye on for the future, maybe the next five years, is that um, there is a dolutegravir long-acting formulation that can be given sub-Q or IM, and when given IM can have well over three months of levels with one injection of active levels. So we can start thinking about maybe monthly observed therapy every three months, so like Depo-Provera for antiretroviral therapy is where the field is trying to go, and we can talk about the value of that or not. Um, and any, there's a related rilpivirine long-acting nanoformulation, and they are working to see whether this dolutegravir-like long-acting prep with rilpivirine could be used as a single, once a month or so, injectable right. regimen. So, so let's say, just a show of hands, um, let's say we had available to us a That's syringe uh, that we could inject IM once every three months and get... 85, 90%, let's say 90% effectiveness, because there's no reason for it not to be. How many people would think that they would use that somewhat? Okay. Wow. Wow. Especially if the third drug was an antipsychotic. Yeah, that's right. Prolixin. Okay, and Dr. Dar is going to take us home here. So I'm going to be brief and touch on a few key points on a case related to prevention. So this is a 36-year-old African-American male who recently was diagnosed with asymptomatic HIV, high T-cells, moderate viral load, no other medical problems, no comorbid conditions, 
insists that he doesn't want to start antiretrovirals. His T cells are high, he was told he doesn't need to. The patient presents with his girlfriend who's repeatedly anti, anti, um, HIV antibody negative, uh, regular condom use, but not 100%, they admit. So the key questions that they came to me about, having been diagnosed elsewhere, was one, how to minimize risk of HIV transmission, and two, and this was the one they actually really wanted to talk about, was can they safely have a biologic child in the future? Tell her to get a new boyfriend. So what would you recommend with regards to prevention if the partner is still unwilling to start antiretrovirals? Improved condom use only. Say this is the standard, do it. Condom use plus prep for the partner or something else. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so almost everybody says improved condom use plus PrEP for the partner. By show of hands, how many people in the room have prescribed PrEP outside of a clinical trial? How many people have been approached to prescribe PrEP but not done it? Quite a few, okay. So this is, I found out as I was going through this that I, was, I made a typographical error, and the good news is I was absolutely consistent with it throughout. This is still the 052 study. There was not an add-on 053 study that you're not aware of. We already talked about this. Julio described the data, this 96 plus percent reduction in the risk of transmission with the one transmission in the group that received therapy, the positive partner received therapy occurring very, very early, probably before viral suppression occurred. Uh, and again, remember, important caveat, this was not treat the partner versus not and then go off and have a good time. It was with very intensive prevention counseling and condom distribution and regular testing for HIV and STDs. So after explaining the 052 data to the patient, he agrees to start therapy. What would you recommend with regards to prevention now? Improve condom use alone, condoms plus prep for the partner, condoms plus prep for the partner at least till the patient's viral load is suppressed or something else. Go ahead and vote. So 80% said PrEP for the partner until the viral load is suppressed. Uh, some people thought PrEP consistently. I think this question and then the last one that we're going to talk about at the end is really how careful is careful enough. So these are the people who want to be really careful and these are the people who just want to be careful. Anyone on the panel that voted for something other than three? I didn't vote, but I mean, I think when somebody comes to you and asks about prevention, uh, the last thing you want to do is, is uh, cut a corner and say, well, I, I didn't know you really wanted to know. Uh, when they're in your office asking about it, you really have to go all the way and then back off after they've decided to back off, not decide yourself on that. So then you're saying you probably would have gone with consistent prep throughout or? No, I, I think uh, I'd have a discussion and then yeah. talk about it. But I think you have to be careful about you deciding what's careful enough because they, they've already kind of made that decision by coming to talk in the first place. That's Good point, Steve. I, I always lay out the spectrum for him, I'd say, so you want to not get HIV from him, so here's the best way, don't have sex, but here's the next best way, and then the next best way, so you can lay it out, so they know exactly, and you kind of lay out the options, you tell them, so, you know, I agree, but be direct with them and honest. 
not promoting it, not promoting anyone in particular, but op, all the options in their gradation as far as. Yes, and, and be transparent okay. about this is a, your rank order. Yeah. And documents. And documents. So, so this is the data that you had already seen, I think, a few times. The main point that I wanted to make from this is that as we've done all of these PrEP studies, I think there are a couple of themes that have come out of them. One is that PrEP seems to work. And I think the overwhelming data in my mind suggests that PrEP works for men and women. The big issue has been adherence. And as you're aware of the FEMPREP study showed absolutely no benefit whatsoever. And when they looked carefully for biologic evidence of adherence by looking for detectable drug levels, they were present in about 30% of the high-risk women enrolled in the intervention arm. And then the VOICE study was presented at CROI. Many of you may have heard about it. This was a 5,000 patient, five-arm study that included tenofovir FTC, tenofovir or placebo pill, and tenofovir 1% vaginal gel used daily, and vaginal gel placebo. And there was no difference between any of the three interventions, two systemic and one topical, in the placebo arms in the study. And again, when they looked for adherence by the traditional ways, by asking patients in pill counts and applicator counts, it looked like everybody was taking all the drug all the time. When they looked for evidence of drug in the blood, it was on the order of less than 40%, and it actually declined with time. So I think while it's useful to know that PrEP is out there for our patients, it's now approved, uh, we should certainly counsel our patients about it as an option, we do need to be aware that we may need to push a little bit harder to get them to take meds. We've, we've all grown up with the difficulties of getting people with HIV to take meds, that we know will save their lives, it's probably going to be even harder to get people without HIV to take meds consistently. So the MMWR came out with interim guidelines for men who have sex with men for PrEP after the IPREX study came out, and have subsequently come out with it for also for women and men at high risk, which would include probably women in a discordant relationship. It's not trivial. I'm not going to go through this in detail. They're available on, online if you're interested, if you haven't already looked at it. Giving PrEP is not writing a prescription, sending them off, and wishing them well. There are all sorts of other recommendations and things that need to be done from, at the very least, a safety perspective, in addition to the all-important interventions to try to improve adherence. Because without adherence, it would appear from the studies they get no benefit, and all they get are the, the costs of the drug and the risks associated with toxicity, and they're not zero. It seems to be pretty well tolerated, but certainly in the studies of PrEP, it affects kidney function and it affects bone mineral density. So there are lots of things that we're supposed to do to do due diligence. So after much discussion, the partners decide not to use PrEP while the partner is on antiretrovirals. The patient's viral load goes to undetectable. They're more adherent with condoms. Now they come back to the original question that they were most concerned about, and they want to talk about whether they can safely conceive. They don't want to consider a sperm donor as an option, and they don't have the resources for things or access to sperm washing or ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Um, so they really can't use these, what are considered very safe means in which uh, HIV-positive male can get their negative partner in pregnant without infection. So the question is, what would you recommend now? Sex without com condoms is not advisable, sorry. Come up with an alternative strategy. Sex without condoms during attempts at con conception is reasonable. 
if recommended number two, not B, she should be on prep during the time they are attempting to conceive at least or something else. Go ahead and vote. So 80% said that they would recommend that they have intercourse during the time of conception, unprotected, and use PrEP during that time. Any comments from the panel? Anyone on the panel would not recommend three, would recommend something other than this? I mean, it's consistent with how we voted on the time before while we're waiting for him to get undetectable. So it seems like it's, it, it makes a little bit of sense to do it this way. But, you know, there are no data and we're just guessing. And uh, as long as we're honest about that, uh, I think that's okay. I, I, if they had unprotected sex with her not on prep, I think it's highly unlikely she would get un infected, but that's not me engaging and putting myself at risk. So uh, it's a safer option. So it brings us to the two points, the one Steve brought up about laying out all of the options and the gradation of risk, and probably even more important than ever, what Chip brought up. And that's probably important to document these discussions because none of these are without any risk whatsoever, but the risk should be very, very small. And then let me just close with the, actually this made the most recent perinatal guidelines about six months ago, where they actually now include for periconception administration of PrEP for HIV uninfected partners may be a consideration. You know, it's a grade C3 recommendation because as Mike said, there is really no data. And in the discussion, they really talk about it's not known what the incremental benefit is to adding PrEP in a situation like this. It's likely to be small, but we don't know if it's zero. I, I just have one question. What is maybe a consideration? <laughs> Can you be more wishy-washy than It might be a consideration or it might not be, but it isn't really yeah. a full consideration. Seems like it should be is a consideration, right? It's a nervous consideration. Can I, can I, I'm going to give Steve the last word because I promised Chip I'd bring this home by four. And can I just make the friendly re uh, amendment that I wouldn't recommend that they have sex without a condom as she takes PrEP. I would say I understand the issues and the desire for pregnancy and it's everything in life is a decision. So let me help you work through this decision. If you decide to do that, I would recommend that you take PrEP. Uh, but I'm not making the decision or the recommendation for them. I'm helping them. You're providing them with information. Right. No, it's an excellent point. Great. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to thank the panel. I'd like to thank the panel for two, uh, two uh, great, several great segments. And just, we'll close with just two questions um, that are pretty straightforward. I'll just talk about PrEP. We've been talking about treatment costs. Who pays for PrEP? Steve, do you? Yeah, Steve pays for it. He's paid for it for everybody. You're talking Steve, me? Either one of you. Yeah, we have a prep program at Kaiser. Kaiser does pay for it. We actually screen people every month uh, for the first six months, not for safety, but for efficacy, uh, to help reinforce some of the lessons. But it is covered. We screened about 60. We have about 30 in San Francisco on prep. And, and what, do you, what, what do you think is going to be the situation, Steve O'Brien, where this is going? We've never had a problem getting it thus far, but I think that's because most insurance companies don't realize what it is when the prescription right. shows up. Okay. And our experience is most insurance companies aren't asking the questions, they're okay. just filling it. There is also an indigent program. So for we have a, actually this was a real case. This woman wanted to be on PrEP. 
as most patients in my clinic have no resources except ADAP, ADAP doesn't cover it, we were able to get it through Gilead, through their okay. indigent program right. for prevention. Any concerns about oncogenic risk of the fetus of PrEP? Sure, but not any different than a right. woman who's already on right. off Okay. Okay. All right, I'd like to thank all of you for coming today and being so engaged throughout the whole day. It's been a fun day for all of us. And thank the faculty for their uh, engagement as well. And of course, Donna Jacobson and IAS USA staff for an excellent uh, um, day of uh, logistics and uh, content and hope to see you all next year. Uh, please uh, send us comments about things you liked and didn't like, uh, including the venue and the content and things you'd like to hear more about next year. Those of you who want to get more involved in HCV, we also have a parallel set of HCV uh, uh, sessions and would love to have you come visit us there as well. So thanks very much. We look forward to seeing you again. Have a good trip home. It was great, yeah. I like the tag teams much better. Please don't forget to turn in your name tags and your audience response system keypads. They won't work anywhere else, so please turn those in as well. Thank you.